This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have Dr. Free and Hess. Her first name is Free. Yes, her parents were hippies, so you don't have to ask. And her last name is Dr. Hess. So she is a pediatric ER physician. She sees all sorts of things that may kill your kids. And it's her job to keep the kids alive. So we're going to talk about how to not kill your children today. Yes, that's the goal. Dr. Hess, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. All right. So what are the most common ways that people almost kill their children? Oh, so many ways. I do have to preempt this with saying that most times they're not actually trying to kill their kids, but there's a lot of stuff that people don't know can really be an issue and can lead to significant injury and or death of their kids. So like I had mentioned prior, I'm going to try and pepper in some nice stories because there are some really cool and nice stories in the PTR, but there are also some pretty not so nice stories that I think parents should hear about, which can help them keep their kids safe and healthy and happy. So one of the big ways that kids get injured that parents could do just maybe a tad bit better if they knew how to do it a little bit better, car seats and MPAs. That's a huge, huge thing. Car seats and what? And MVA's motor vehicle accident. Sure. Yes. Huge, huge thing because we see so many injuries from either not being in car seats or booster seats when they should be or in them incorrectly and always a preventable injury in those specific instances. So do you have any stories as to why? I did another podcast with a pediatrician more about general pediatric wellness. Mm-hmm. And about the importance of the angle of the car seat and mm-hmm. if the car seat isn't at the right angle. like, And I see it all the time where parents will take their car seat out and just sit the car seat down on the floor and have their kids sleep in the car seat. Yeah. And that's a huge issue for many reasons, not just because once you put it back in the car, it ends up not being put in correctly. There's a whole load of issues with that outside of that. Like kids shouldn't be in the car seat to sleep even as they get a little bit older, but the angle of it causes them to oftentimes bend their neck in an unhealthy way that can actually obstruct their breathing. There have been deaths associated with kids sleeping in car seats. So there's a whole host of issues. But when you do go to put that back in, when you take your car seat in and out of the car, every time you put it back in, oftentimes there's an issue, unless it's got the separate base. But that's really only for true, true infants. And once they get older, You shouldn't be taking them in and out. And people do all the time. They leave their car seat at the babysitters or at the daycare center. So the person taking them home has a car seat. And then as you put it in and out, it's just not adequate. And most people really, as much as you think you probably know how to put the car seat in, most people don't know how to do it securely and correctly. So what, any tips you can give, I mean, without any visuals of how to put a car seat in, any tips on how to secure a car seat? Yeah. So first and foremost is to always, always, I know myself included, none of us really like to ever read the directions, right? I mean, do you read the directions for everything you do? Every single thing, every time, (laughs) especially when I cook. Yes. Um, We like to all try to pretend that we do, but we don't. And that's actually true of car seats as well. I mean, we kind of think, oh, well, I've done this before. I've had another, a kid prior It might've been a different car seat, but I know what I'm doing. All you have to do is do the car seat like this and that's it. And they don't read the directions. And that's a huge, huge issue because car seats are very different in how they need to be placed. They also are, the car seats change with respect to what your car has available or the weight of the child. Can you use the latch system? Do you have to use the seatbelt system? So first and foremost is always to read the directions as corny as that sounds, just do it. Also, another big thing that people do that they think is okay is coats in the seat, especially in places that get really cold. I know that when I first had my daughter, we were living in New York City and we had a street park. And it's tough when you're having to walk a long distance to your car, it's freezing or it's snowing. You get in the car, it's still not warm. It's really easy to think, I'm just going to throw in that with her coat on because she's going to freeze to death and 
buckle her up and think that it's okay. So that's a huge mistake that people do. Why is that bad? Because someone's thinking my kid's cold. I'm just going to buckle them up in a coat. Yeah. So it's bad because car seats aren't made for all that extra fluff. And when you put them in with that big bulky coat and you go to tighten it, it's not actually tightening right up against your child's chest. And it often leaves a lot of room between your child's chest and the actual seatbelt itself. And then when that child moves and the coat moves a little bit, everything kind of maybe where that coat was bunched and you thought it was tight, now it's no longer tight. And your child can actually slip out of the car seat in a bad motor vehicle accident can slip out of the car seat due to that space that that coat is meaning then that your kid is more likely to die absolutely fly through the window like i'm gonna be really blunt about that like this no absolutely absolutely i mean especially if it's going to be a motor vehicle accident that's where the kid is going to come out of the car seat the likelihood is that that coat can make the difference between your child and their death, or they're being completely unharmed. That's how large of a difference that one mistake can make. Because if they get ejected out of the car seat, the likelihood is that they, I mean, they have a high risk of getting ejected from the actual car. And that is always obviously horrible. And when your car seat is used correctly, even in some of the most horrific motor vehicle accidents, children will be completely unharmed if the car seat is used correctly. So I'm sure you've seen those car accidents where the kid is properly buckled in, the car is mangled, but the car seat, it's like literally saved the kid's life because it was properly used. Absolutely. It happens so often where kids will come in and everybody else that was in the car that was not in a car seat, like the adults that are in the front seat and even older kids that are in the back seat, everybody is injured. And the only person in the car that wasn't injured is the child in the car seat. That happens all the time. And on the flip side, it happens often that the person most likely to be injured in a car wreck is the young child who's not properly in a car seat. So just that one thing of doing it right can make all of the difference. I mean, and and that includes even older kids too. I think a lot of people start to say, you know, my kid is old enough. They're responsible. They don't really need a booster seat. Plus she whines that it's not cool and all of her friends are going to make fun of her. So I don't put her in a booster seat. And that's a huge issue because I see kids all the time that come in with abdominal injuries from the lap portion of the seatbelt that they wouldn't have had if they were in a booster seat because that booster seat helps the car, the lap belt lay exactly where it needs to be. Without that, they can have significant abdominal injuries. I see that all the time. I don't care how uncool they look. I don't care how much they whine. They should be in the proper seat because it can make a huge difference. I mean, I've had kids who come in with abdominal bleeding as a result, whereas if they were in that booster seat, they would have been completely fine. And I see that people will get like baby warming gifts when it's almost like a blanket or something to put around the kids to keep them warm when they put go into the child seat. I'm assuming that falls in the same category. Yes, absolutely. Nothing should be on except for what your regular clothes are, which are at most a thicker kind of sweater, but no outer jackets, no outer blankets, nothing. What you can do is very quickly, once you get them in the car, take their coat off and flip it around backwards put them in the car seat real quick, flip the coat around backwards, stick their arms into the armholes so that the back of the coat is actually on their chest. And when you have the back of the car seat on their back and the coat on their front over the car seat straps, they're still warm just like they were wearing that coat correctly, but yet it's not underneath the car seat straps. So there's no excuse because, or keep an extra blanket in the car or bring one with you and put them in the car seat, buckle them up and then put the blanket over them. You can keep them warm and still keep them safe. Absolutely. Any other thoughts before we move on to our next talk? Yeah, I'll say that I absolutely practice what I preach and I have an eight and a half year old daughter. Uh, She's a big girl. She's on the 90th percentile for height and 85th percentile for weight for her age. So she's very, very big. She is still in a five point harness. And it's not even just a regular booster seat. It's a five-point harness with a full height back and full sides on it. And she will be in that until she is 90 pounds, which she fights me on because obviously she doesn't want to. But I'd rather have a kid that might be a little embarrassed and have to deal with a little arguments in the car than one who's injured or dead. That's, I think, a very sobering point. Like, keep your kid alive. Yeah. We do what we can in so many other ways. It's just that there's these little areas 
of dealing with our children that's for some reason just kind of slipped through the cracks of safety and they shouldn't because they're easy to do and silly things just get in the way and they shouldn't. But that's a big thing that we see in the ER, definitely. Another huge thing that we see in the ER is furniture falling on kids in the house. I not so long ago had a two-year-old who had a TV fall on her and she died. A normal, healthy, happy kid that was just running around the house playing with their siblings and a TV that was on an end table, no less. It wasn't even on a very high dresser or anything. She didn't try to attempt to climb a dresser. So there was no reason for this to fall over. It just fell over as she was running by playing. Was it a flat screen TV or one of those old? It wasn't. It was one of the old ones, not a huge one, but... And yes, it does happen a little less so with the flat screens, but some of those flat screens are large and they absolutely still can kill if they tip over. And those, a lot of times people, if they balance them, they're almost a little bit easier to tip on higher surfaces. But the big ones, the weight is there. But that's a completely preventable death. We see dressers falling on kids because kids love to climb up the dressers. If you pull them out in the proper way, they make a staircase, which is very appealing. Oh, sure. So all dressers really need to be secured to the wall. Everything, even regular height dressers. So there recently there was, I don't know if you've ever heard of, it's called Megan's Hope. There was this little girl, Megan, who six years ago, sort of around this time, maybe a, a little earlier in the year, had a regular height dresser that all kids have in there just with the three drawers. So it wasn't very high. And she, while playing in her room alone, had that dresser fall on her and she died while her whole family was home. And so her mother started Megan's Hope, which essentially was a campaign to get people to anchor all of their furniture. And every year around the holiday season, she reposts a letter that she wrote out to parents just telling Megan's story and telling her story so that people wouldn't forget to anchor their furniture because a lot of people think that's a low dresser. This is my kid doesn't climb. She's good. I don't really have to baby proof my home. And she wants people to remember that she didn't think it would happen to her either. And it did. And I think those efforts definitely make a difference. The way I learned about the child safety seats is I saw a post on Facebook about these parents that had their babysitter watch their kid and then the babysitter Mm -hmm well-meaning, just put the kid in the child safety seat on the ground so the kid mm-hmm. could sleep. And then she looked over and then the kid was dead. Yeah, that was a, a fairly recent story that had come out. And that that mother, too, was trying to use her story to, to get other parents to understand that it's something really that can happen. And the sleeping in the car seat thing happens more than a lot of people realize because what we tell parents with babies who have reflux And we often say we want them to stay in a little bit more of an upright position after they feed, which will decrease the reflux. And so what that means to a lot of parents is, oh, well, I have the car seat anyway. That keeps them in an upright position. And so they let the child sleep in the car seat, well-meaning, like they actually think that that's a good thing, that they're trying to do what their physician told them to do is keep them in an upright position, not realizing that it's actually a very dangerous thing to do for a different reason. So it happens more often. And then a lot of people would like to believe. And that actually brings me to another huge thing that, that I see in the ER all the time is co-sleeping, which is really actually technically bed sharing. Bed sharing and co-sleeping are two different things if you really want to get down into the details of it. But bed sharing with infants and young children have brought so many babies to my ER and so many of which... I have not been able to save. So when you say young children, how young? So the SIDS risk, we start to try to, we counsel that it starts to decrease at about a year of age. So definitely under a year, they should not be sleeping in a bed with a parent. I personally think that until they're toddler age and up to where they're kind of up and running around and crazy, they still shouldn't be in there. Define toddler Um, age. Around like two, three years old. Even one and a half. I mean, because it, it depends on the kid also. You know, like my daughter was a late walker. You know, she did a lot of her gross motor skills were a little bit on the later side. So for her, I would say she wasn't doing everything at the same time as a lot of other kids. So I wouldn't have wanted her sleeping in the bed with me, even when she was past the time where we would technically call her high risk for SIDS. So every kid is a little bit different, but definitely under a year old should never 
be in the bed. I mean, I had a conversation actually just today at work. I was working in the ER today and there was a young mother who was not there for anything related to this, but it came up in conversation that she sleeps in the bed with her baby. And she thought she was doing it for like to be able to help him with his reflux. She's like, well, you know, I was always afraid that he's going to choke on the little bit of vomiting that he has after he feeds. And at least if he's right there on me or next to me, I'm going to hear him or feel him. Not really realizing that the risk that she was putting him in was much higher than any risk he might have if he threw up while he was in a proper sleeping area. So what are your Uh, thoughts on this? Because my son is 18 months mm -hmm. and he gets up and he runs all over the place and he's very, very active and he's climbing, but he will sleep in the same bed as my wife and I. So how bad is that? He's of the age to where I think we need to start lightening up just a little bit. Even in that situation, what I would say is still keep the bed as safe a place as possible. It should be a firmer mattress. You shouldn't have it like, I love lots of pillows on my bed. But if I had a child that age that was sleeping with me, I certainly wouldn't keep all those pillows on that bed. I would keep maybe one thin blanket as opposed to a big poofy down blanket on there. Obviously also making sure, and I'm not saying that you do this, but making sure that any child of any age isn't sleeping in the bed with a parent who's been drinking or doing any kind of drugs because that then, or has severe sleep apnea, those types of things increase risk of SIDS, especially during the true high risk SIDS age, but even afterwards. So I think once they become that age, as long as you're still taking as much precaution as you can, I think it's okay. I spoke to another pediatrician and his advice was for more so for the parents' sake, just put the kid in their own crib and let them sleep there. So yeah. <laughs> well, and that's why I'm saying like, it's hard because I understand that once they get a little bit older, you're kind of like, well, they're doing their own thing. Well, they get really mad and then he like yells and he's mad. Yeah. He'll get over it. People are going to say no to him his whole life, right? True. But I know I get that intellectually, emotionally, it's a bit different. That's like one of my really soft spots. Yeah, I hear you. And the same thing with all the parents that I talk to. I mean, none of them are doing it with any intention to take that risk. It's not like they're saying, oh, I understand that risk, but I'm going to take it anyway. They're doing it just really actually thinking at that moment in time with all things considered that that's what's best for them and their baby. They're not trying to harm them. They're not trying to make any kind of mistake that's going to put their life at risk. But I think sometimes allowing your emotion to take over gets you to think, it gets you to not understand how significant the risk really is. Does that make sense? Like it just, it allows you to sort of trick yourself into thinking like, oh no, no, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, there's been more than a handful this year just that I've had personally that have been bed sharing deaths this year. And that's but just- That's a very, again, serious thought of don't let your kids sleep in the bed with you or they'll die because they could. Oh, like, It I sounds dramatic, that. but that's the reality. No, and that's very much the reality. And that's exactly how I worded it to the young mom that I was talking to today. I- was very honest and said, look, this is going to sound like I'm being overly dramatic and you might think that I'm saying this to scare you. And I sort of am, but I'm saying it because it's true. Your baby can die as a result of you sleeping in the bed with them. I said, and I have told too many mothers and fathers that I was unable to save their child from this particular incident. And I do not want to have to say that to you. And when you put it like that, where I'm looking her in the eye and saying, I'm not being dramatic. This is real. This has happened to other people that I have had as patients and families, and it could be you. So do you choose to take that risk? Or do you choose to maybe let your baby cry a little bit or throw up in the bed if they have reflux? Now that you have all the information, you have somebody that's not just on the soft parenting sites that are telling you it's okay because nothing ever happened to them. Now, what are you going to choose? And when you talk to people like that and you're really real about it, I think it touches them in a different way. This particular mom said, absolutely, starting today, he will sleep in his own crib. And she started to cry. And she's like, now I feel bad that I took this risk for so long. I mean, I reassured her saying the same thing I just said before is that all parents who love their kids, they're doing the best they can and making the best choices that that they can with the information that they have at the time. But once you get that additional information, you need to readjust things. And that's exactly what she did. And that makes sense. 
yeah, it's just, it shouldn't be happening. It's so heartbreaking to have a family have to experience losing a baby for something that's so preventable. Because that is one of those things that, not that there's not SIDS, you know, when babies are sleeping in their own bed in the correct way, because it's still possible. There's still other things that can happen. But the majority of the times when these kids come in, it's because they've slipped off the mother or father's chest and kind of got tucked in on the side of their body. And the parent was just so tired that they didn't wake up. And that's a completely preventable situation. So it's just not worth the risk. And I get the want to do that. You know, my daughter was a horrible sleeper. She had terrible reflux. She just never slept through the night. And I remember just crying and having my hand through the bars in the crib just to be able to touch her and try and shake her. But I just couldn't get myself to do it as much as I knew it would help us all sleep better. I was just too terrified of the possibility. And I think everybody should be terrified of the possibility because it's a real possibility. It's very serious, right? It is very serious. <laughs> I know. Next safety tip? Uh, Unless next, you have more on sleeping. No, no, no. I have so many. I could go on for safety tips forever. No, that's um, fine. So next safety tip. <laughs> so well, This is really relevant. I'm like making a mental list of like all the things I'm going to do now. Yeah, <laughs> definitely anchor stuff that you would never think of. That's a huge thing too. The what? Um, oh, yeah. 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 Another, just to move up to a little bit of the older kids for the parents out there that might be listening that have older kids, something that I've been doing a lot with right now is bullying and cyberbullying and phone use, which then leads to social media use and different apps. So how Um, real is this? Because you're in the ER. How much of this are you actually seeing? A lot. In the ER? In the ER, absolutely. And see, that's exactly it. Most people don't realize how it would translate, but it absolutely does. The amount of preteen and teens that we are seeing that are depressed, anxious, have self-injurious behavior, suicidal ideation and or suicide attempts has skyrocketed. Now, there's lots of stuff going on with respect to looking at what the correlation is between increased internet use, social media, and various apps and all of that, and the rise in suicidal ideation, depression, and suicide attempts in preteens and teens. And that's still kind of ongoing, but no doubt is it there. And on the plus side of the ER, even when it's kind of crazy, I have a lot more leeway with how much time I can spend with my patients. Whereas in primary care, they're very limited in how much time they have because you have so many patients that you have to see in a certain period of time, and they can only touch on certain things. and can't really into depth about a lot of stuff. Whereas when I have a teen that's coming to me with a suicide attempt, whether it be a Tylenol ingestion or cutting, anything like that, if I choose to, which I always do, I can sit and talk to them at length and really get down to where it's coming from. And I cannot even explain to you how many of these kids talk about how a good portion of their mental health issues are a result of issues that they've had with friends, with bullying and cyberbullying on apps, somebody at school taking an inappropriate picture of them and sending it to everybody in the school. Also lots of things with sextortion. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's become a huge issue right now with our- Maybe explain that for anyone listening. Okay, so what sextortion is where somebody takes and usually in a sexually explicit photo, suggestive photo, and will then threaten the person who's in the photo to then get more photos saying, if you don't give me what I want, whether it be more photos or to meet me in person or to comply with a sexual act of some sort, if they do meet in person, if you don't do this, I am then going to post these photos all over social media. I am going to send it to your school. I'm going to send it to your parents. And with the increased access that our preteens and teens are having with social media, different apps, some of which, Lord, are horrendous, it's become a huge, huge issue, way more than most people think. And the reason why a lot of the parents right now don't really know about this is because, one, it's a difficult concept to kind of really understand. And two, we didn't grow up with it. So I personally didn't grow up with cell phones. I did all my college papers on a word processor. (laughs) 
there wasn't, internet was kind of new. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. We didn't have all these apps and games, Fortnite, and then live streaming apps like Live Me. We didn't have all this stuff. So not only do we not know what it is, but we don't know how the kids are using it. And it has become such a huge issue. Every single teen that I talk to not only uses these things, but has had multiple issues as a result of them. If you want to talk about your personal take, do you let your kids use social media or how do you monitor that? Yeah. So my daughter's only eight and a half, but she actually probably knows just because this is what I do. She probably knows a lot more about it than a lot of kids even older than her. She does have a Gizmo Pal watch, which has three phone numbers in it that she can call out and that we can call in. It doesn't have any internet access, doesn't have any games, nothing else. She knows very well that she will not be getting a phone at the earliest ninth grade. Hopefully by then things will have changed because right now the way we're doing things and the way technology and all of the people who are creating the apps and the games, it's just, it's outrageous and there's no repercussions for what's going on. So hopefully by then things will change and then maybe I may alter the way that I think, but she will not have anything. She has a computer that we share at home. She only uses it in front of us. It does have monitoring app on it. I actually use Bark. Bark is a fantastic monitoring app. And we do a lot of talking about what the risks are and why I'm so careful with it. But the problem is a lot of parents can't do that counseling because they don't know. You can't talk about what you don't know. You can't teach about what you don't know. And our kids are so quick to learn it. And they're so quick to learn the next new thing that comes out that as soon as the parents are trying to learn what their kids are using right now, they've already moved on to the next thing. As a To kind of get everybody to understand how serious this is. I will explain that my one particular experience with an app called Live Me. So what I do with respect to my website and all the other work that I'm doing, I use all of these apps and social media platforms as a child. So I register for all of them at as the youngest age that's allowed by that app. And then I use it just the way a child would use it. I kind of record and or screenshot the whole way through so that parents can see what it entails to sign up or what it doesn't entail to sign up, meaning how easy your child can just get the app. And then I go ahead and I use it. So one of the ones that I used first and that I did a review on first was an app called Live Me. And I have a long list of things that, of apps that I have to go through and use and learn and then review and teach parents about. This one was on that list, but kind of got quickly moved up to the top due to a news story that was put out there that was talking about sextortion and young, young girls, seven, eight years old, and this particular app. So I threw that up to the top of the list. I started using it. And within several days, not only did I see some of the most horrific situations with young girls, but I ended up one day having to call my local police department and the Center for Missing and Exploited Kids about one particular child, about seven or eight years old that I saw on there. Thankfully, with a lot of work, we were able to get her account taken down. I hope that with the police involved, they contacted her family, but I don't even know who this person is or where they were in the country. I have no idea. That was on them to try and figure it out. But the stuff that I see, the predators that are on there and the things that our kids are being exposed to is horrendous. And so many kids just have free reign of all of this stuff. And they have free reign of it because the parents just don't understand the risks that are involved. And that's my goal is to try to teach the parents about the risks, teach them how to talk to their kids and teach them how to be willing to say no to something that almost all kids are using because they need to stop using it. It's horrible. I mean, We used to think about predators being like the creepy guy that's standing on the sidelines of the playground and watching the little kids and then trying to get them to come and see their puppy or get some candy. And that we could watch for. We go to the playground with them and we watch for the creepy guy. We can't watch for the creepy guy anymore because they're everywhere on the internet and they're posing as young teenage girls, young teenage boys. They're posing as all sorts of people that even the kids aren't recognizing aren't now their new online friend. I mean, it is so organized what these predators are doing on these apps that they actually have names and roles that they play. The predators get together in groups 
They have the introducers that start to talk to these kids on the more popular social media apps or the most popular live streaming apps or even games like Fortnite. So they have those people that kind of start the conversation. It always starts as more of a friend. It's never sexual or anything in the beginning. Once they feel like they've gained that kid's trust and that child then feels like they know this person, you know, because they're sharing all these intimate details about themselves and that the kid thinks that they know them, they then ask them to chat with them on a less monitored site. And then all of a sudden this kid, thinking that this is their friend, goes onto a less monitored site and that child is then passed on to somebody who's called the handler. The handler, then their job is to pretend that they're still that same friend, quote unquote friend, but that's where they start the whole grooming process. The grooming process then leads to that very first lift your shirt picture or the very first any kind of sexually explicit photo. And then once they get that, then the sextortion begins. And then they move it over to somebody who really does the true extortion part of it and starts threatening them. There's so many accounts, even of girls who have been brave enough to come forward to tell their stories of these girls who then continue to give all of this information because they're afraid their parents are going to find out. You know, they make their one silly mistake by thinking that they're giving a photo of them flashing their breasts to this quote unquote friend, a silly mistake that back in the day some girl might have done and nobody would have ever known about it. Now they make that mistake and the whole world can know about it within minutes. And they're afraid their parents are going to find out. They're afraid their friends are going to find out. So they continue to do what they're asked to do to keep that from happening. And it can completely destroy their lives. It's horrendous. And they're so, so good at what they do. Some of the things that I see them saying on these live streaming apps, these young girls are getting on there and they're, they want to be famous and they think they're a good singer or dancer and they, and they are, and they get up and they're singing and all of the praise starts coming out. You're so beautiful. You're such a good singer. You're such a good dancer. Can you do a handstand? And the kids don't even realize that they're asking them to do a handstand so that their shirt will come up when they do the handstand. They're so good at what they do. It's essentially their job. And this is why parents need to know about it. So my takeaway is you just have to really monitor what your kids are doing. Yeah. So you need to not only monitor yourself, but honestly, you absolutely have to have a monitoring app of some sort to help you because it, it is literally impossible for anybody to be able to truly monitor what they need to be monitoring to keep their kids safe. So do you want to talk about any of the monitoring apps or why you like the one that you're in? And again, this is not sponsored. Yeah. So we use Bark and I actually have talked to a lot of the people within Bark because I think it's fantastic. I do not get paid by them whatsoever. I do talk to other people about it because I think it's fantastic, but I'm not an employee and I do not get paid by them in any way. I pay for my own subscription. So this is all legitimate information. So one of the fabulous things about Bark is that it monitors things without really completely taking away their privacy. So it can alert you to the fact that your child is either searching inappropriate websites to find information it, it uses artificial intelligence to be able to identify different words that are worrisome, different photos that are worrisome, and then they can alert you about that so that you can start talking to your kid about it. It works for everything from words that would suggest bullying, cyberbullying, sexting, which is a huge issue. I mean, that's a big thing with teens too. They're sexting back and forth, not even realizing that it's actually a crime. Or if they send a picture of themselves topless, that that's actually child pornography. And they can be charged with that because the laws haven't caught up with what technology is able to do right now. So kids aren't even realizing that. So the parents will be notified of that. It actually even, it identifies words and chats and emails and or pictures that might suggest depression, suicide, school shootings. They've actually been able to stop multiple school shootings this year just by identifying various texts and emails that were suggestive of that and then were able to have those parents alert the authorities and they were able to stop that. And I mean, it's, it's $9 a month, which isn't... It's $9 a month. Yeah. It's ridiculously cheap. I'm looking at it right now as we're talking. That's why. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculously cheap and it does things that no matter how hard you try, you're just never going to be able to do it yourself. You just can't. I, granted, I still work in the pediatric ER, but because this is what I've decided to do and have this be my thing, I'm essentially doing it full time. 
And even I'm having difficulty keeping up with it. And this is what I do. So if I'm having trouble, there's no way that some, a parent who has all of their doing something else as a career, they have multiple kids, they have all these extracurricular activities, you just can't keep up with it. It's impossible. And to think that you can is just fooling yourself. And it's, again, taking one of those risks that you don't have to take. So take advantage of, and Bark isn't the only one out there by any means. There's lots. And if you feel like you need to look through all of them and see what best fits you and your family, then do that. But there's no reason not to, because if there's anything that is worth the money, it's that. And it's not even that much money. I and- totally agree with you. Like for $9 a month, if my child's 18 months, so he's... <laughs> so, oh, so here's a little tip for you with your child being 18 months. So your first thought is probably oh, well, my child's 18 months, so I have absolutely nothing to worry about right now, right? Oh, I have lots to worry about. Don't worry. No, no, I, like, but I mean like with respect to what you might see on either on the internet or on your phone or on your iPad or whatever. No, because he chews on it, so he's not seeing anything. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you then. When he does get a little – so even now, do you ever show him any videos, say, on YouTube Kids? They have that – like the shark song that he likes. Okay. Baby Shark. That's what he watches. He loves okay, the Baby so Shark song. So we sang the Baby Shark song while I was suturing a little kid today. Oh. And we, when we end up doing that, I end up singing in my head for three days straight. Yeah. Once you hear it, it doesn't go away. <laughs> yes. But so here's the thing. That Baby Shark video on YouTube Kids is not necessarily safe for your kid to watch. Okay. So tell me why. Now, okay. why? So this is just one of many examples. There's another physician mom who actually contacted me because on my website, I have stuff that I do and stuff that I write. And then it's got a professional speak section where other professionals, a lot of physicians, but even a department of justice, a mother that works for a department of justice, somebody that works for Microsoft, anybody who has any kind of professional experience in anything that's related to child safety, then there's a parent speak section where parents write about issues that they've had with their own children. Everything from accidentally leaving their kid in a hot car to social media issues to one mom writing about how their teen child played the choking game. And that was a very serious one. And then there's also a kids speak section where kids of all ages from, I think the stories that are on my website right now range from seven What's your website? pdmom.com, P-E-D-I-M-O-M.com. Okay. So what did the kids say? So the kids range right now from, I think the youngest is like seven years old who wrote in about bullying and then all the way up to college age. And they also write anything from what their experiences from bullies are, what their experiences with social media. There's one amazing story on there from a teen about the pressure of maintaining the perfect image on social media and that what that means to her and her peers, all sorts of stuff. So, and I explain that just so that you understand where the story that I'm about to tell you is coming from. So I had a physician mother who actually contacted me knowing what I do and what my website is about and what happened. And she ended up writing a story. So it's published in the parent speak section of my website. She one day, her son had a nosebleed. She was watching her son who had a nosebleed and was trying to get him to sit still so that she could get his nosebleed to stop. And to get him to calm down, she was letting him watch a cartoon that he watches all the time. And they're sitting there and she's holding his nose and they're watching. And at about four minutes and 45 seconds into this cartoon, she sees the cartoon stop, an adult man walk onto the screen. He takes his hand and he gestures and slices across his wrist. And he says, remember kids, long ways for attention, across ways for results, do it. And he walks off the screen and the cartoon resumes. And this is a cartoon that her son has watched by himself several times in the past, right? She just, four minutes and 45 seconds into it, you've already checked it a couple times while your kid has started to watch it, and you think it's fine, right? So they just insert these things into the YouTube videos? Into the middle middle of the children's videos, absolutely. I went to YouTube Kids, and I saw it myself, so it absolutely was real, Not only did I report it, but I had many, many people report it. It took me contacting a friend that works for Google to get it pulled. This stayed up for days after all of these reports. So anybody can put that into the middle of a video that you're then letting your kid watch thinking, oh, it's just the baby shark video. That's crazy. Yeah, very crazy. But again, parents don't know that that's a thing. So they think, you know, it's YouTube kids. It's safe. 
so the last, the takeaway I'm taking is you really can't take things for granted. You really have to just be very, very vigilant. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of those things that when I say that the seriousness of this is like nothing we've ever seen before with respect to the danger that it poses to our kids, I am not exaggerating. What I like to say about it, I truly think this is true, is right now with our children, we are essentially running the largest social experiment of our time. We have no idea what it's doing to our kids because none of us have ever lived it. And the research is just starting because we're kind of lagging behind all of what our kids have already started doing and what our kids are being exposed to. So it's just even porn, for example, that's another huge issue that kids are having early access to, which is completely changing their view of what normal relationships are. And there's researchers all over all of this stuff now because we're lagging behind. We don't really know the long-term effects of it. And I guess that's, again, circling back to why that bark control monitor is probably, and even if you don't get that one, get one. And to be honest, there still has yet to be, in my opinion, Bark is definitely one of the better of all of them, but they all still have their inadequacies. There's some things that every one of them still can't do. So sometimes you actually need to have more than one for different types of things. My hope is that as we're learning more and more about what app developers are doing, what websites are doing, and we're just learning more about the technology that we will eventually come up with something that really can do much better than what we have now. But we need to do the best we can with what we have. And we have so much to be thinking that you can do it on your own is silly. And I guess multiple sources of monitoring is probably the best yes. best approach. Yes. And again, you have to look at each individual one and say, what are our family and my children's online habits, what apps do they use, don't use, like, what do we do as a family? Like, what do we need? And then look at each individual one and start to pick and choose what works best for you because there isn't one that's going to work perfectly for everybody. But there's just so many things out there that can help. You have to use them. You have to use them for the safety of your kid. The stuff that's out there is mind boggling. So, and there's tons of stuff like shamelessly putting in a plug for my website, but there's tons of stuff on there coming from real parents who have experienced these things already. I mean, there is a story from a mother on there in the parent speaks section who talks about how, and she tells you in detail, all of the precautions that she took for her teen daughter. And she did a great job. I mean, if you read through the story, she did things that most parents would never even think of with respect to fixing the computer and passwords and all these things. She was on it. And still, she ended up finding out quite some time later that her daughter had kind of snuck into the computer in a different way, had actually formed an alternate identity of herself so that her mom wouldn't even know who she was online, and had started talking to a person that she should not have been talking to. It seems that also like a lot of education should be, especially if someone in those teenage years, my takeaway or what I'm getting from this is you also just have to communicate a lot with your child. Yes. Like as a parent, you have to learn about what to talk to them about. If you don't learn it, you can't start that conversation. And that's where we're in this kind of generational gap where the parents don't even know enough about it to be able to start that conversation. So they have to take that step to learn, which is part of what I'm doing, trying to teach the parents so that they can talk to their kids. Because right now the kids know that their parents don't know anything. It's something that I feel incredibly passionate about. And I really, really feel strongly that everybody, parents need to learn about this stuff because it's such a risk to our kids, such a risk to our kids. Um, Any other thoughts on internet safety before we move on to the next topic? Phones. Kids do not need phones at a young age. Well, I hear a lot of parents saying that their kids need it because they need to be able to call their parents or I need to know where they're going because they have these after school activities or we need to be able to keep contact with them. But the problem is, even if you're not worrying about the internet issue, even just having the phone that they're constantly looking at is taking away from the social interactions that our kids are having with others. So I don't know if you've ever paid attention. I do all the time. Pay attention to the bus stops early in the morning when the kids are waiting for the bus. Have you ever looked at a group of kids? Um, I tend to just like look at the bus and I'm going where I'm going. So I like never looked at it. 
So do me a favor for the next couple of days that you might be out and about when the school buses are picking up the kids and look at the group of kids that are waiting on the corner for the school bus. None of them are talking. They're all looking at their own phones. There's no interaction. And these are the kids that are in their neighborhood because they're all waiting at the same bus stop. And that social interaction is completely going away. And there's actually some people looking at how they're actually losing the ability to understand social cues because they're not really having as much face-to-face interaction with their friends because they're using social media and texting instead of calling or talking to them in person. And that in itself is a huge risk in the law. It's different than the risks I just talked about before, but it's a huge problem. Any other thoughts on social media? Social media is terrible. I mean, for myself included, for everybody, even adults, but even more so for kids who just don't have, brains are still developing and they're dealing with things that we never had to deal with. They're dealing with everybody looking like they're having the perfect life. Everybody is having a party and is dressed perfectly. Makeup is perfect. And that's exactly what that one story on the website from the teen is about, the pressure of maintaining the perfect social image or the perfect image on social media. They're being put in these situations we were never put in and that most kids wouldn't normally be put in if they didn't have social media. And so you start having lots of feelings that kids are starting to have about inadequacy, depression, anxiety, the whole fear of missing out, and they start doing things that they might not normally do just to be able to post on social media, putting themselves at risk. And another huge, huge thing that I left out previously, social media always has those challenges that go out. There's huge issue with teen challenges, and they're all dangerous and silly, and that social media is the only way that kids learn about them. The choking challenge is one. What is the choking challenge for those who don't know? (laughs) So choking challenge is where kids are putting, sometimes with other kids' hands, but sometimes with ropes or other things, they start to choke themselves because it gives them a feeling of euphoria. And usually they'll do that with a friend or a quote unquote spotter that's there to make sure that once they pass out, that somebody is there to make sure that they get out of it and that they're okay. But kids then become addicted to that feeling of euphoria and they start doing it when they're on their own. And that's the story of the parent on the website that talks about her child doing the choking game where he decided to do it on his own at home and he ended up hanging himself. And kids wouldn't even know about these things or they would only know about it when they're doing it at a party with a group of kids. It's just everything, their world has expanded so hugely, so tremendously that I don't think that they even know what to do with it. I think a lot of those concerns also translate to adults as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the time spent on social media and the feeling of inadequacy definitely happens to adults. And also, we're doing it as adults. How can we expect our kids to not be doing it and not be spending so much time on their phones or on the internet when we're doing it, right? That's sort of hypocritical. I mean, I know that I spend way too much time on social media. And I think that's the hard part. If as a parent, you're spending a lot of time playing with your phone, ignoring your kids, then your kids are probably going to follow suit. Versus if you put down your phone, turn off the electronics and played with your kids or spent time with them playing soccer, some other non-concussion related sport, then that's probably better for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. But we need to start to understand that if it's an issue for us, if most people take a hard look at how much they use their phone, how much they're on their email or on social media, most of us if we're really being truly honest with ourselves, we'll probably admit that it's too much. And that's fair enough. Other safety tips? Gosh, throw a question you've ever had out right. there and talk about so, it. So I remember when I was doing anesthesia, some kids were playing with lawn darts, but not safe lawn darts. These were the old school lawn darts with the big spiky tips. Yes. So for some reason, I don't know where they got these old lawn darts, but they were playing with each other. And of course, one of these lawn darts ended up going right through this eight-year-old's head. So they had to call neurosurgery and I was involved on the anesthesia team. So they had to remove this large dart. So I'm asking about large pointy objects. (laughs) Large pointy objects. Large pointy objects are a huge issue and they don't always have to be pointy just for the record. So some examples of things that I've seen in the ER that have caused significant issues that most people might not think of. I've had a child who was running around, he was three years old, was running around with a toothbrush in his mouth. Regular plain old toothbrush, not anything special. And he fell directly on his face. 
and the toothbrush went through the back of his throat into his brainstem. So I'm assuming he died. He did not actually, but he had extremely significant impairment for the rest of his life. Yes. Oh. I have seen lots of straw injuries, kids walking around with cups with straws and then they fall. So lots of injuries to the soft palate and the, the posterior oropharynx just from, which is the back of the throat, just from straws. I've seen kids who have used the bottom rolling rack of the dishwasher. You, know, you can remove it and it's got wheels on it. Yep. So while the parent is doing dishes, the kid takes it out and is pushing it along in the kitchen and trips and falls. Oh, and, and the pointy things. The pointy things right into the face. Oh. Pencils, sticks, various toys, obviously, like you're saying, the darts, and then even baseballs and all of that, not wearing helmets, all sorts of, they're not always pointy things, but yeah, eye injuries is a huge thing with pointy things. And so the interesting thing is, I think to some people, especially when I talk this much and this long about this many issues, it can almost turn people off a little bit and get them thinking, oh, well, what are we supposed to worry about everything? And we have to let our kids be kids and we can't just worry about everything all the time. Otherwise, life is going to stink. And I get that. But a lot of these things are just little everyday thoughts. And if you think them and you present it, like if you think about it and you're careful of that, it takes a moment out of your day's time and it makes things safer in general. So it sounds a lot all lumped in together, but realistically it's not. The bigger things are really a lot, like the internet stuff and all of that. But I just don't want people to think that I'm kind of coming across about nothing is safe and your kid is always at risk. No, but I think just keeping an eye out and being aware, like if you're not aware of something, you're not going to see it and prevent it. Exactly. And it's all about being aware and being able and willing to listen. So since we have adequately depressed everyone about childhood and raising <laughs> Sorry, children, guys. I'm going to bubble wrap my child and bubble wrap the house <laughs> and remove anything remotely weighing more than a pound <laughs> in the entire house. Do you have any happy stories from the ER? Like, Oh my gosh. Some good things that you've seen. I have so many happy and funny stories. Gosh, honestly, there is nothing better than working with kids. It is fantastic. So what I do, especially in the ER is, I mean, which works, especially in the ER is when I walk into the room are obviously there for a problem. I almost never address the parent first. I always address the kid first especially if they're able to verbalize anything to me. So I walk in, I say who I am, and I say, oh, you must be so-and-so. So what's going on? Why are you here? Why did you come to see me? And I do that because they come up with the most amazing things ever. Like today, for example, I had a kid, and I introduced myself, and I said, what's going on? And he's like, my nose just won't stop throwing up. And it just made me laugh. Mom was laughing because he's constantly got a runny nose. So he thinks his nose is throwing up. He thinks That's his funny. nose is throwing And it's just fun because when instead of just simply asking somebody if their leg still hurts or if their hip still hurts after you did something or whatever, you get to have a race down the hallway with them. Or if they're say, complaining that they have belly pain and you think that they might be exaggerating a little bit because they're a kid, you say, oh, hey, okay, if you win the race down the hallway, the winner gets a popsicle. You ready? And they'll run their heart out with no belt. <laughs> and then you give them a popsicle and you're like the coolest person in the world. It's fabulous. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. But even better, obviously, is when parents come to the ER really thinking there's something significantly wrong with their child and being able to work them up and be able to tell them that, no, that's not what it is. That's amazing. Well, I think reassurance is a large part of your job. I remember when our little child was like a month old, I think I was at work and my wife sat him up and propped him up. And I think he like must have tipped over. Like he tipped over onto like soft carpet and she called mm-hmm. me in panic, like, oh my God, the baby tipped over. Should I take yeah. him to the ER? Like she was frantic. And I said, is he moving and doing stuff? He's like, yeah, he's fine. I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it is. But honestly, I think that stuff is okay. I don't mind that kind of stuff so much. I was a new mom and even as... A pediatrician and a new mom, things are different when it's your kid and things just, your brain doesn't work the same. So new parents get a lot of slack from me. <laughs> so, uh, Well, it was funny because, I mean, I'm a doctor and I know doctor things, but my kid had a temperature of 104 and he was running around and doing just fine. But I got a little shaky. I mean, like I've dealt with very sick people 
very, very sick people, very complicated cases. But my kid with a temperature of 104, even though he's running around and doing fine, we were very, very close to just going to the emergency room just to make yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Your brain doesn't work the same when it's your kid and that's okay. I don't mind that. Like, I actually enjoy when parents come with, even if it's a simple thing, but they're super concerned because I feel like that's a huge chance for me to educate them about that and about a lot of other stuff that they just want to know. Like it's, they're not- Do you then depress them about the internet and tell them they should never- No, no, I don't. I swear I don't. I do not bring this up randomly in the ER or at parties because I want people to like me and otherwise they're all going to be like, hey, I'm not talking to that shit. So wait, this isn't going to be your Christmas party conversation of social media is bad. (laughs) No, no, because I already feel like "Hmm, maybe people are avoiding me because they don't want to talk about all this horrible stuff. But um, I don't. I have cool and funny stories and uplifting stories. I got those too. I'm not all negative. I'm not a negative Nelly. All right. Tell me the coolest story that you remember from in training, in your residency training, or as a full attending, you're like, oh, that's like a great story. And that's why I'd become a PZR doctor. So some of the most basic ones, and really it's so many of these, and you might think this is corny of me to say, but when a kid after me examining them says, I want to be a doctor just like you. And they give me a hug that makes my day. I mean, that is what carries me through. But also like I had, for example, one kid who had symptoms that were rightfully so concerning mom for the fact that this child might have cancer. And she was right on. She wasn't being a parent that was so hysterical about things and was Googling everything and came in and said, I think he's got cancer. She had legitimate concerns and things that were real and things that actually made me concerned that he might have cancer. And I was able to do a pretty significant workup with, obviously you can never be a hundred percent sure, but Wait, you're doing this as a ER physician? Yeah, you'll do the initial workup, a lot of okay. which will almost rule something out. Like you can't be 100% sure, but enough so to where I see he doesn't even need to be admitted. The chances of this are so low. I even talked to oncology. They completely agree and they don't even want to see him kind of thing. And when a parent, this particular mother just cries and hugs me and she won't let go and she's thanking me profusely for saving her child's life when clearly I did nothing to do that. Like I didn't save him because there was nothing wrong with him. But in her eyes, just having that knowledge was sort of like saving him and her because that's where she was at the time when she came in. She was really thinking everything was over at that point. So, and then having them walk out with smiles and saying, thank you so much. And, and then on the very few occasions, like that one in particular, where they end up sending a pizza to the ER just to thank you. Those are the simple little things that I didn't even do anything but they make my whole career. Those are the things that make me continue to want to do what I do. So it's not even always the real saves, although those are amazing too, but it's not always the real saves that mean the most. It's just the heartfelt, real thanks that you get from parents that I think you don't get the same way in other specialties. And I think that's pretty cool. That is Uh, very cool. I think that's a very nice positive note versus from the beginning (laughs) to the end. So do you have any social media? And and I would say if, hopefully I don't have to, but if I have to go to the ER, I think I'd be very happy if you were the PZR doctor. Why, thank you. But we won't discuss social media or anything depressing. (laughs) Do you have any, in seriousness, I think you bring up a lot of very valid points. I'm going to probably secure everything in my house to the wall. (laughs) No. <laughs> but okay, you want to know the positive points too, like things that that can even keeping on the safety sort of spin on it. My overall thoughts on that on the positive side of it is just spend time with your kids. Genuine one-on-one, you are the most important person in the world and I am here with you and only you right now time. That kind of time. Because I think with all of the things that we have going on in our lives, careers, all the extracurricular stuff that we have, friends, obligations, cleaning the house, issues with spouses, whatever it might be. And then you add the internet and all that stuff. I just think that time is dwindling. And that can play a huge part in keeping our kids safe. Because if you have that genuine one-on-one time where they really know that they are important to you, you are important to them, and they are your world, 
those other risky things that are going to come about later, which really are nobody's immune to them, they're going to be handled a little bit better, maybe a little less dramatically, and you're just setting a really good foundation. And I think now more than ever, we need to just be more aware of that. It's taking a little bit more work with everything that we have going on. And one of my thoughts on everything that you said is it seems that in the age of social media, it makes after school sports activities because you can't really be on your phone if you're playing soccer or doing something else. Mm-hmm. Those activities, whether you're interacting with your kids, you're talking about the game, they're socializing in other kids in a normal way become that much more important. Yes, hugely, hugely important. And even if you have to use that as a means to just kind of keep everybody in check to really be in the moment in the time, then that's okay too. Then pick and choose activities that sort of force you to be present. There's no shame in that. I need lots of help doing lots of things. I find things that force me to maybe not fall back on the easier way because maybe I don't have the willpower to do something, or maybe I don't have the drive, or I'm being lazy that day or whatever, then I find things that will force me to do that. And although initially it might stink, in the long run, I'll look back and say, that was a good idea. So if making sure your kids are in sports, or you signed yourself up to do something specific with your kid, that is a means for you to force yourself to have that one-on-one in the moment time, then do that. I think everybody's got to find their way, but you got to recognize what in life is kind of preventing us from doing that. And I think our kids need it now more than ever to just have us really have us. So that's the positive note we're going to end on before. That's we a positive note. Even that wasn't crazy positive. I guess I'm sorry. Maybe we can do this again and I can do only positive stuff. That would be great. <laughs> Unless you have another positive story you want to end. Well, actually I think the kids hugging you and I can't imagine the relief that you caused those parents telling them that no, your symptoms are not cancer. Yeah, we're just being able to get them to where they need to be at the time to be able to save them is a big deal. And it's not just me that does that. I mean, there's a whole host of people, especially in the ER. I mean, you talk about EMS and the nurses that are working the ER and me and the x-ray techs and the phlebotomists and the lab techs that are running the blood and the pharmacy people that are sending me the meds that I need to give. There's a whole host of people. And that's one of the coolest parts about it is that it can all run really well to really do some magic. And honestly, sometimes it's magic. It's not necessarily always skill. Here's some irony for you. What are your social media contacts in case people want to get in touch with you? Learn more about safety after you're chastising for social media. What's your Um, social media contacts? Yeah. So my (laughs) website is, like I said before, pdmom.com, P-E-D-I-M-O-M.com. And you can find me at the same name on Facebook. And that particular page, I do a lot of more little, as opposed to just full on articles, a lot more little tidbits and more recent recalls and news stories that will pop up and what safety issues are involved in that particular news story. So that is a pretty good place to find recent information. And then I actually even started a since the Facebook page is more for me just getting content out there, I formed a community group called It Takes a Village to Keep Kids Safe. And that particular group is for everybody and anybody that wants to be part of a group where anybody can ask questions. So it's not just me putting the information out. Anybody can post a question that like, they may have pertaining to their kids or parenting or whatever. And then anybody else can give advice because I learn just as much from everybody else I teach, but I also learn just as much, if not more, from everybody else. So that's a great place for anybody to kind of throw out just random questions. And then you can get experiences from people in the group. I think it's at a little over a thousand already, and I just kind of opened it. And it's a great place for people to come together to be that village to help keep our kids safe. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Both of those are the PD Mom. Pinterest is PD Mom. So they're all PD Mom, but so it's, and LinkedIn is under my name, Free and Hess. So all of those places and all the links to those places are on my website, pdmom.com. So even if you don't remember them, you can just go to my website and all the links are on there. So you can go to any particular one. Anti-social media. You're just saying just use it properly. Oh yeah. yeah, No. So here's the thing. This is actually a really good positive note to end it on. And I apologize for my phone ringing in the background, but a good positive note to end on is that there are amazing things about social media. There are amazing things about the internet and there are wonderful reasons why our kids and we should be using it. So 
when I throw all that scary information out, I don't mean to say your kids should have no use of anything because number one, this is their world now. This is what their life is and we can't just shove it under the rug. We need to embrace it and we need to go with it. So we need to learn about it. But we're not doing that just because we have to. We're doing it because it's got amazing potential for our kids. The things that they can see and learn on there are things that we didn't have the opportunity to see and learn because we didn't have access to all sorts of stuff from all over the world. The connections that they can make with respect to their interests or what their whatever dreams they have or what they want to learn about, it's an amazing thing and we should embrace it and we should learn it. We just need to use it responsibly and we need to be very aware of the risks of it so that we can use it in the best way possible and minimize the risks as much as we can. Well, Dr. S, thank you very much for joining us. And again, uh, we'll include all of your social media stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.